Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Ah, take 15 of however many takes this is of the Believe in Hub of Champions podcast with your host, Shukri Wright. We tried recording this episode on a previous um platform, which once I realized that there was something completely wrong with this, that I said, you know what? Nah, scrap it. Throw it all out. Throw it in the trash. The only thing that's not trash about this episode is, number one, my guest that I have on with me, Sammy P of Nesson and Fox Sports, better export extraordinaire. He comes back on the podcast. Sammy, thank goodness I was able to figure this out early because I was like, yeah, I'm not feeling this. Like, I'm not liking what I'm seeing. So jump ship aboard now and let's figure this thing out. The only thing we don't got to figure out is the Bruins and the Celtics because... This part is about to get started today, and I am fired. For those who, who are listening to this podcast, probably on Monday morning, you're like, what do you mean today? Like, well, the Bruins will be starting today, Monday. But for those of you that are listening a, a day or two later after the initial recording, it's playoff season. Sammy, what's going on? I only hope, Big Dog, that Joe Missoula is as quick to make adjustments in this Celtic season, like when Marcus Smart isn't playing well. Oh yeah, and put in Malcolm Brogdon. Like you just adapted on the fly, and and that's really the one concern that I have about the Boston Celtics. We know the team is awesome, and we know the players are rock stars, namely oh, yeah. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. But mm-hmm. I hope that Joe Missoula can make the proper adjustments. But hey, as we sit here right now and we tape this a couple days before the puck drop of the Stanley Cup playoffs with the Bruins, I I don't know when the last time it was that the Bruins were favored to win the Stanley Cup, yeah. and the Celtics were basically one or two to win the NBA championship. I mean, it's wild to be a Bostonian. It's awesome to be a fan of those two teams. And, you know, I have a lot of friends that work the bars around Causeway Street around the garden. And they're like, yeah, you know, we're uh, going to be pretty busy through June. And I'm like, all right, well, let's take it one round at a time. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's oh, yeah. get through the first couple rounds and then go from there. Absolutely. But before we um, jump straight in, I do have to start this podcast on a serious note. Um, so at the time of the podcast recording, it is the 10-year anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombings. And I couldn't start the podcast without acknowledging that first and foremost, especially as Bostonians, and the significance of that day 10 years ago, um, and as well as the the impact that it has had on the city and, and as well as the region since then. And Sammy, I want to give you the opportunity to share with me your thoughts on what do you remember most about that day? And as well as um, like, what does one Boston day mean to you? It's mostly a memory that I have. I remember we were producing a Blackhawks radio game that day. And, you know, you're trying to figure out because obviously we have the games, but life is way more important than a damn sporting event. And Mm -hmm. we were actually breaking into the Blackhawks radio game because I'm in Chicago at the time. You know, I'm not from Massachusetts. I'm not from the region. So everything that I heard or saw was from afar. And I remember we were breaking in to the broadcast and the news department was throwing in all of these updates about the bomber. And I remember we eventually caught the bomber, not obviously not me. I just grew myself in the conversation, but I remember when the the bomber was caught and then we were able to break in with that. And um, yeah, it was, it it was wild and, and just devastating. And, you know, our station is actually like right around where the bomber was caught, like wow. hanging in the boat. Like huh. that's in Watertown. Yeah. And I, I know that a lot of the people that I work with now were on lockdown in that building. 
Um, obviously, they're all safe and everybody's fine. But um, the the hysteria and the unknown, because that's the worst part about something like that. You never know if something's coming next. Is there a, yes. you know, a sequence of events? And does he have another bomb on him? So I think everything that I've been able to gather about that just horrific day has been through people that were either here that day or people that I work with now that were able to tell me stories of that day. And I, I can't believe it's been 10 years. Yeah, it doesn't feel like 10 years ago. Like I wasn't living in Boston just yet. It was about 13 months before I would eventually visit Boston for the first time. But the thing that I remember most was um, I was on my cell phone um, in college at the time as an undergrad at Long Island University in New York um, with, a, with, with a friend of mine at the time. And he was like, yo, shoot, did you hear about what, what happened in Boston? I was like, no, like, what, what what's going on? He was like, dude, there's been some sort of bombing. And I'm like, wait, what? So I was in the courtyard on campus, walked back inside the, the one of the buildings on campus where the, the club area is, where the different like student clubs are. And the TV was there, and there were several people watching it, and it was tuned into ABC7, which is the New York affiliate for, um, for ABC. And there was the images coming from Boston. I couldn't believe it at first. I was just like, wow. Like my like my heart sank to like my stomach and it was just like pretty um surreal, but it it did become like a talking point, even on like the sports um, talk stations um in New York that day. Like like it, it did become like a talking point. And I remember just um although I, at the time I wasn't living in Boston yet, I wasn't uh, like affiliated with the city in East um stretch stretching imagination, just watching from afar and, and just watching in admiration just how the city like just pulled together and whatnot. So it was um it was really wonderful to see. But but as you said, and I agree with you, it is stunning. Like I I don't know if it's amazing or 10 years it doesn't feel like 10 years at all like it, it, it would be 10 years in june since the bruins they 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 would end up um you know making their run to the Stanley cup finals and we all remember the red sox um boston strong world series championship run that same october as well and and just um circling back to uh the, to the bruins like 10 years later it's amazing how much has changed in 10 years. Like the captain is no longer, he's no longer playing. He's retired. He's a surefire hall of fame as a Dan O'Chara. We know that um, the GM obviously is not the same. Peter Trevelli was a GM back then. Now is Don Sweeney who could very well win the general manager of the award in the, in the NHL. Um, and the Bruins, they weren't even on favors to beat the win the Stanley cup. 10 years ago when they played the Blackhawks. The Blackhawks were. Now, it is expected the Bruins that they win the Stanley Cup. Sammy, when you begin to reflect on the regular season that was for the Boston Bruins, and here we are just two days before, at the time of the recording, before Puck Jeff for game one of the Cup, of the cup uh, playoffs, round one against the Florida Panthers, how do you begin to contextualize or to make sense of what we saw? Because this was truly something that nobody truthfully could have foreseen coming at all. They were 30 to one at Circa in Vegas to win the Stanley cup before the season started. And I can remember being on our show on Ness and saying, you know, I don't know that you should bet that yet because at the time, Charlie McAvoy was still out yep. and Brad Marchand was having hip surgery mm -hmm. or had had hip surgery. Yep. And, you know, conventional wisdom would tell you that if you're missing two of your best players, you're probably not going to start gangbusters yet. 
this team just showcased its unbelievable depth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were breaking down the game on Friday and, you know, my co-host is like, I think the Panthers are going to give them a series. And I said, I said, the Bruins third line is better than the Panthers second line on offense. That is correct. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it's, it's depth on depth on depth. And I covered, as you know, I covered a lot of those teams in Chicago. I was there from about 12 to 18. I saw mm-hmm. two Stanley Cups and multiple deep runs in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Those Blackhawk teams, they rolled at least three lines. This Bruins team rolls four. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can make the case they have two legitimate number one defensemen in McAvoy and Lindholm. The goalies yep. have been pushing each other the right way all season. There's no like stubbornness. All Mark supports Swayman and vice versa. I mean, hell, they give each other hugs after the damn games. <laughs> Is it, you know, that never happens. There's there's yeah. always like a, a competition, and these guys are like broing it out. I mean. This is the most complete team in the National Hockey League. And they are favored to win the Stanley Cup, and they have been for four or five months now. The only thing that you really worry about is injuries. Mm-hmm. And that's a part of life in the Stanley Cup playoffs. I mean, these guys are out there. I mean, some of these D guys like McAvoy and Lindholm are going to be playing 25-plus minutes a night. And Brandon Carlo hasn't been able to stay healthy in the postseason. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a history of that where he takes a hit and and he's out. And you know guys like Patrice Bergeron, he got hurt in Montreal with an upper body in a game that didn't even freaking matter. Yep. You know, and he didn't practice on Saturday. So you, if this team is healthy though, bro, I mean they are the best team in hockey, and it's their cup to lose. I really believe that, and. I would also include in that in that defenseman conversation, Dimitri Orlov, the importance of getting him from the Capitals, I think is going to show itself even more when the playoffs begin on Monday. Again, we're recording this two days before Pud drop for game one of the Santa Cup uh, playoffs, round one against the Florida Panthers. I think the importance of Dimitri Orlov as your seventh defenseman has grown even larger as this, the second half of the season um, progressed after the trade deadline, of course. And speaking of being so deep. This team is not even completely healthy. Yet, when guys like Nick Felino come back, you have to wonder who is in and out of the lineup. And you've seen this team have re- such remarkable depth that you saw the evolution of Trent Frederick in terms of his offense in the year that he had and the impact that he's had on this Bruins lineup. And you've, you've seen how the additions of Tyler Bertuzzi and Garden Hathaway have impacted this team as well. All of them slam dunk trades that Don Sweeney made at, at or after the trade deadline. So the question that I would pose to you is, who do you foresee like being slipped out of the lineup for the Bruins when Felino does come back? Or controversial question, do you see Felino himself even like, you know, missing a game or two because of him being a healthy scratch, not because of bad play, but because of, of Jim Montgomery wanting to give other guys the opportunity to play. Well, let me start by saying if your biggest concern, and it sounds like it is a concern of yours, if your biggest concern is will the winger on the fourth line play or not, that's a good thing to that's have. Like, exactly. I mean, like, like, you know, <laughs> other teams are like, all right, well, who's going to center the second line? And Shoes like, all right, is uh, Trent Frederick going to play? It's like, all right, that's a pretty good problem to have. Um, when they practiced on Saturday, they went Felino at the left wing. They went Hathaway Ooh, on the right. On the left. No check in the middle. Wow. So 
again, these things are probably going to change. Jim Montgomery, I will give him credit. And Judd Surratt was talking about this on the Sports Hub yeah. the other day. He said, Montgomery's done a really good job of jumbling these lines. Not only the lines, but the D pairings. And I think he's really settled on a pretty good pairing uh, with McAvoy and Orlov. And I think mm-hmm. that's going to be the, the pairing going forward. And then putting Lindholm on the other side of um, – of, um, We're geez. talking – not um... – Totally spacing out here. Yeah, it's not it's not Grizzly. I don't think Grizzly, or it could be Grizzly. Carlo, Lindholm, and Carlo. Car- Car- Carlo. Uh, yeah, we do cover this team from time to time. Yeah, right? like, but it's just. <laughs> yeah, well, but there's like there are so many guys exactly that you can deep put anywhere, and that's mm-hmm. the point. Like, all right, let's take that 10, 15 second brain fart out of it. They can do whatever they want, and I think you know the series will dictate who plays on that fourth line. If they need some more thump, Trent Frederick's going to be out there. Yeah. I was at the game a couple of weeks ago when he dropped the gloves and dropped the dude in one punch. Like, if there's a physical series, and I'll tell you what, Florida's got some guys like Gudis who are going to try and, yeah. and hunt for heads. So you'll need Trent Frederick at some point in the series, and maybe you take Hathaway out, maybe you take Felino out. But the fact remains, your concern about the fourth line is what <laughs> other fan bases are worried about with their top line or their second line, and that's a good problem to have. I mean, talk about being spoiled rotten. That's literally the Boston Bruins in 2023. But it but it reinforces the point that this is a team that I really wholeheartedly believe that this is their standing cup to lose because you look at the other 15 playoff teams in the league, none of them are as good as the Boston Bruins have been this season. And we're not saying it because you cover the team, obviously, me being a Bruins fan, but also like talking about the team like on radio and podcasts. But also, like, we watch the games on a nightly and daily basis where it's like, it's like I'm sitting here talking about, well, who's going who's gonna to be a healthy scratcher? Who's going to play? Because there was someone, I did a Twitter space last week after the Bruins set the new um, wins record and the most wins um, in a single season in NHL history. Someone on that Twitter space, which was recorded and it's there, they asked, like, yo, who, when Valino comes back, what's going to happen? I said, you know what? I didn't really give that much thought. You're right. Someone, someone's going to be taken out of the lineup, but that's a good problem to have. But as far as the goaltending is concerned, I mean, it's not really a concern, but there was a question that someone did ask, and I want to get your thoughts on this. Omar Swayman has been by far the best goaltending tandem in the, in the NHL, and it's, not, and it's no one else after those two. So the question that was asked to me, and I want to ask you is, in the playoffs, do you continue to pl- platoon Omark and Swayman, or do you go with a clear definitive number one? What are your thoughts? It's a fascinating conversation to have, and I don't know the answer. I think what's worked for them all season is the balance in that. Yeah. Both guys are clearly very good goalies in the National Hockey League. My gut would be that it's Omark's net until further notice. I certainly wouldn't hate a platoon, though. I mean, it's worked all season. Yeah, you know? I think the problem with the platoon is that let's say you start Allmark game one and then Swayman starts game two and has a really tough game two. And then Allmark has to come in in game three and then he keeps game four and then Swayman is mentally shot. So I think what I've learned over the years is that you want your backup to be ready to go and be confident. So if you do that platoon, it has the potential to crash early. And I I think I try and avoid that 
if I was Jim Montgomery and company. But whatever they do, I'm cool with. They clearly know more about hockey than I will ever know. And whatever they've done this year has been incredible in terms of pushing the right button. But I would think you go with the older veteran goalie to start. He's been really good at home. We know the numbers. Um, I think it's his net until further notice. And then if you need to make a change, you make a change. And then it's Swayman's net until eventually Olmark recovers. Um, I think it was 15 when I was with the Hawks. Crawford looked awful in the first couple games against Scott Nashville. Darling. That's right. And Scott they brought Darling. in Scott Darling yeah. in game two or game three. Darling ended up finishing that game, played four and five. And I believe Darling struggled in six. And then Crawford came Crawford. back in in six yep. because Crawford was like, all right, he was champing at the bit to get back in there. So they only put Darling in because Crawford stumbled. But then it all worked out and they end up winning another Stanley Cup. But, I, you know, it's hard. It's hard to answer that question because I have no idea. I'm not in the room. I'm not privy to this information. <laughs> I would yeah. think, though, it's all Mark until further notice. But, hey, you got a hell of a backup in the kid from Maine, Jeremy Swayman. I, I wholeheartedly agree. You know what's interesting? Maine has continued to produce these goalies, man. Like, it's it's like a goaltending factory. Like, I'm telling you, it's like soon enough, if it hasn't happened already, other NHLs are going to be like, yo, who's next great goalie for Maine? We, we got to get the guy. But I want to shift gears from, from Bruins because, I mean, I can sit and talk Bruins for the next three, four hours. But the Celtics, and this is where I'm going to get you fired up if you aren't already. I mean, you're already a high-energy guy. I mean, I'm not worried about you being fired up or anything like that. But I'm going to go on the air of negativity here. And no, I'm not. I am not Mike Felger. But I am concerned about the health of Jalen Brown's hand. That is going to be the most scrutinized hand in the history of Boston sports. That's not Bill Buckner, no pun intended. Sorry, Red Sox fans. Sorry. Um, We're not talking about but, the Red Sox. Yeah. I, that, I was not, that was not intended, but it just, no, seriously, like, it's, Jalen Brown's hand is going to be the most scrutinized hand probably in the history of Boston sports. And this is not a hyperbole, but I really do think that this is one of those, it was really one of those fluky injuries like, bro, like, what were you doing? And I'm sitting here like, okay, if Jalen Brown's hand is fine and the team, and I'm emphasizing the team now, I'm talking about apart from Tatum and Brown, but I'm talking about guys like Marcus Smart, um, Malcolm Brogdon, um, Sam Hauser, the, the lethal killer from beyond the arc. If those guys are playing the type of basketball that we all know that they can play, this series should be over in five. I'm willing to give Atlanta at least one game at home. I'll give them that. But if the Celtics, for some reason, struggle with the Hawks this series, Despite them being overwhelming favorites in the betting odds, what would be the one reason why you would have concern about the Celtics potentially struggling against the Atlanta Hawks team that, frankly, it's a mismatch? If they're lazy on defense, they're in trouble. Great point. If they're, if they're on point, they should be fine. I mean, we know they're going to be good around the rim, assuming the time Lord Robert Williams stays mm-hmm. on the floor, and I think he's shown that he's been able to do that over the last couple of weeks. So he protects the rim, and then when he's out, it's Al Horford. Um, but really, it's perimeter defense. I mean, this league is built on mostly wing guys. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you have guys like Curry and Damian Lillard who are, you know, point guards that shoot threes and shoot them well. But mostly, I mean, for the last 
10, 15 years, maybe even longer, it's been guys that get the ball on the wing and go to work. Absolutely. And that's what you have to stop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the Celtics have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, and they also have a guy like Malcolm Brogdon, who I think is going to be a, a versatile, very important piece of this puzzle. And yes. I would argue he's maybe the the third or fourth most important Celtic if they're going to win a championship. Like his ability to do everything on the court is massive. And I know that there's a faction of Celtics fans that have this affinity for Marcus Smart. And I think Marcus Smart is good in a lot of ways. Marcus Smart also sometimes thinks he's freaking Michael Jordan. On <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were some games last year against Golden State when Marcus Smart was taking more shots than he should have. And that's not the type of player Malcolm Brogdon is. And this is nothing personal. Like, I have nothing against Marcus Smart. In fact, he was awesome. He made me a lot of money when he was at Oklahoma State. <laughs> but you have to remember you're you're Marcus Smart and not Jason Tatum sometimes. And that that yeah. comes down to coaching and making adjustments and all that. But none of these should be issues against Atlanta. I mean, it, it, let, let's put it this way. We're at the we're at the park, right? We're on mm-hmm. the pavement, and I get the first pick and you get the second pick, and we pick one player until everybody's gone. Mm-hmm. After Trey Young, who who are you like really excited to take? No one, you know, like you, know. you can make a case that the Celtics probably have four of the five best players in this series. And to me, it's a numbers game. I mean, how many, how many roulette balls do you got? The Hawks have one Celtics yeah. have like three or four. And I I think their depth and their dominance from those star players should be enough. So I, I really don't have any concerns. You talk about perimeter defense. And I thought that was a great point because I look back to the NBA finals last year. I look back to what was one of the three major reasons why the Celtics fell apart in games four, five, and six, perimeter defense. This year, the thing that, and I th- I'm so glad you brought this up because we all know that Trey Young is le- can be lethal from the three-point um, mark. That's There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. But I'm thinking ahead even round two because let's face it we all expect the Celtics to get out of their own round one that's that's a that's a given but the deeper that they go and you go up against teams that have the ability to shoot the three that is Philly we obviously know about Joel Embiid James Harden when he's right and he doesn't have one of those playoff uh, disappearances or, or even Tobias Harris for that fact of the matter and obviously Milwaukee um Giannis Antetokounmpo um, um, Bobby Portis, and if, and this is a big if, if Chris Middleton is healthy, the thing that I am most curious about, and I've noticed this as a trend, and I want to get your thoughts on this, the Celtics, when they shoot above 30% from the three-point line, best in the NBA, and it's like, oh, okay, but when they shoot below 30%, they're like very average to borderline pedestrian. So why is that? Like, it just, it seems to be that there's an extreme here in terms of when the Celtics are shooting well from the three-point range versus when they're not. Do you think this could be a potential fatal flaw for the Celtics team if they are, if they are playing up, optimum level basketball? You know, Milwaukee makes me nervous for sure. I mean, in, 1, I mean I'm ju- with you. I don't mean to jump ahead of Philly and, Brooklyn or whoever, I mean, whoever comes out of that series, that should be Philly. Philly should wipe the floor with Brooklyn in five. So let's mm-hmm. say it's Boston, Philly. I think Boston's a better team. But, you know, when you look at Milwaukee, that's one of the best defensive teams in in a while. And I yeah. know, you know, we look at these regular season metrics and it's like, well, 
know, the New York Knicks were seventh in offense. And it's like, all right, well, the East kind of sucks. And a yeah. lot of teams in that division kind of suck. So the playoffs are different because you're playing the same team four, five, six, seven times. And I always thought Milwaukee's ability to sort of like suffocate what you do well makes Milwaukee what Milwaukee is. And, mm. you know, they have Brooke Lopez, who's been a surreal candidate for defensive player of the year this year, even though Giannis is a better defender. You know, it's funny. It's yeah. like, who's the best defender in basketball? It's not Brooke Lopez, even though no. he might win the award. It's Giannis because Giannis yeah. could guard anybody. And if Giannis had to lock down somebody on every possession, that's all he had to do. That's what he would do. But the size, the length, the wingspan, the rotations. I mean, that Milwaukee team, when you, when you, if you just stood them all up and had them hold their hands up and had their, oh, hold their hands boy. out, oh, you're yeah. talking about, holy cow, you're talking about Giannis, Brooke Lopez, Drew Holiday at the point, who is longer. He's like as long as my driveway and he's the point guard. <laughs> yeah. And then you got Chris Middleton, and it's like they are just so long, and 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 they cover so much ground, and they recover well. So if you're if let's put it this way, if you're prone to taking a lot of tough shots, which the Celtics are, yes, they take a lot of bad shots. Now they make a good amount of them, but if you're not getting easy shots, I, I don't care if it's from three or from mid range. If you're taking a lot of bad shots, contested, off balance, fadeaways. That's how this Boston Celtics team has sort of turned into a pumpkin at times. But, right. you know, we're, we're looking at a season where they've been playing A minus basketball, B plus basketball for for 80 percent of it. And it all comes down to how you match up with these teams in the best of seven. And as long as the Celtics can get to the free throw line, you know, you make your threes. The good thing about making threes is when you're making threes, it opens up everything else. But when you're not making those threes and that's what you were just kind of talking about, when it's my turn, my turn. When it's Brown's turn and then it's Tatum's turn and nobody's putting shots in, then everybody else is standing around and the ball doesn't start moving around the court. So you got to make those shots, but they do take a lot of tough ones. And and that's a problem against a team like Milwaukee. You can get away with it oh, against yeah. Atlanta. You can get away with it against Miami, but you can't get away with that against the Bucs and teams like the Sixers. Absolutely. Last question, because I know you got to go, you got to get going. Um, if you are the Celtics, if you're, you're betting on the Celtics, what is your prediction on the on the series against the Hawks? Your official prediction for Celtics Hawks and your prediction Bruins versus Panthers, which begins Monday night. Okay, yeah, no, we are we are doing this on Saturday, people. So don't exactly. think that, like you know, don't think that we're just past posting here. Uh, <laughs> I think the Bruins win in five. Um, that's the number that sort of stands out to me. Remember the the Panthers last year had a lot more things going when they won the Presidents Trophy and. You know, they had guys that were healthier. You know, Sam Bennett played really well last season for them, and mm. he's been banged up for the Panthers. I just – they've got some studs. They've got Kachuk, and they've got Ekblad, and they've got Barkoff, but the Bruins have so many, so many good players yeah. that can sort of suffocate what they do well. And let's also remember that they got this 30-year-old goalie who will be playing at the Medford Y next year probably. <laughs> so, I think it's been a good story, mm. um, but – it should be easy for the Bruins. I'll go Bruins in five, and then I'll take the Celtics in six. Um, Trey Young's going to win them a game. Um, and the Hawks, you know, the Hawks are okay. They're punchy. They can, they can outshoot anybody on any given night. Yeah. But if you play the percentages, you give Young a 30-point game one night, maybe he goes off for a second. Maybe they win two. I think the Celtics win that one in six. Both teams advance to the second round. Believe in a hub of Champions Podcast with your host, Shukri, right? Sammy P. of Nesson and – Fox Sports joining the podcast. Sammy, thank you. And 
you're an absolute rock star. We will definitely be talking more, especially as the postseason progresses. This is just the beginning. So this, if you're a Boston sports fan, this is a phenomenal time to really like get locked in for the Celtics and Bruins, as I got you covered on the podcast as well as the radio show as well. Sammy P., Thank you, thank you, and thank you. Where can everybody you. find your work for Nesson and Fox Sports? Drop well, it. it's simple. Put it all on Twitter, at SPSHU. You can find everything there. Try and make it linky for you. So appreciate you having me on always. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much, man. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.